Welcome back to another episode of Meet the Creatives. Today I am joined by Seth Godin. Seth, thank you so much for being here today. This is a privilege and an honor. Oh, it's an absolute pleasure. Thanks for having me. Uh, for those of you who don't know, Seth is the author of 18 books that have been bestsellers around the world and have been translated into more than 35 languages. He writes about the post-industrial revolution, the way ideas are spread, marketing, quitting, leadership, and most of all, changing everything. You might be familiar with his books, Lynchpin, Tribes, The Dip, Purple Cow, and What to Do When It's Your Turn. So uh, Seth, let's get right into it as I have a lot I want to get to with you here. You have 18 books, which are bestsellers, and you've been very successful and you're well-respected in a lot of different industries, but then very little in, in way of being on social media and you're not, you know, shamelessly self-promoting like a lot of us are. What is the reason for that and how have you been able to get your message out there when you're not doing those things? Uh, you know, the thing is that social media is a commercial enterprise that is run on behalf of the people who built it. And you are the product. So when you find yourself wanting to boost some posts and pay 20 bucks to reach people who you ought to be able to reach, you're working on behalf of a system. Mm -hmm. And it is optimized to give you a little endorphin hit every time. It's optimized to make you sad when it doesn't work. But it's not optimized to have you do great work. Right. So there's almost no correlation between likes and great work, almost no correlation between traffic and great work. So if you want to set yourself up to build a career based on great work, it's probably a mistake for all your data and all your short-term successes to be based on something that has nothing to do with great work. And I think a lot of people have fallen into the trap of acting like they're in high school and engaging in a popularity contest. Right. You, know, you, you remember the people who were the most popular ones in high school, but those people didn't do great work. And sure. it's possible that they didn't go on to do uh, anything that you would be proud to have done. Right. So that, that's what led me to find the discipline to not do it. I mean, I understand how it works. I use it under another name sometimes. Right. I play around because I have to be smart about it. But I have met very few people who say, I am deep into the social media game and I am really happy about it. <laughs> yeah, it's so true. Do you think that it, it, growing organically and growing in a way in which you're actually like interacting with people in the real world it's, can propel you faster than if you were to be, say, pushing, you know, Facebook ads, et cetera? Well, propel you toward what? You know, so, so my yeah. metric, my, the two questions I would ask are, one, this person, will he miss me if I'm gone? Right. Will this group of people miss me if I don't show up tomorrow? Will they say, you didn't put anything on Insta. Well, are you okay? Right? right. And number two is, are this group of people pushing you to make the sort of work that you want to be known for? Mm -hmm. That's it. Yeah, you know, if you're making, if you're doing work that you're not proud of and it's getting you a lot of likes, then what you're probably saying is, wow, look at all the likes I have. Right. But wouldn't it be better to be able to say, wow, look at my work? Absolutely. So do that. Yeah, for sure. And I feel like a, a lot of it uh, in terms of like getting the numbers has to do a lot with with patients or I should say inpatients. And a lot of people are very impatient who are my age. I know that that I was and I like to think that I'm kind of coming around to realizing how, how long it's going to take um, to to get to where I want to go. And I think that it's kind of just a journey and there are dips, as, as, as you say. Uh, but I've heard you talk about being like patiently impatient and that the myth of the overnight success is just that it's, it's a, it's a myth. 
do you think it's possible to define a point of what which you've made it, or are people just use that term impatient to describe, you know, not being satisfied creatively? Well, you know, my blog had fewer than a few hundred readers for more than a year. Right. And most people who have, you know, a couple hundred readers don't keep blogging every day. Mm-hmm. Um, they think that once they get the big following, then they'll put out the work. It never works that way. Right. You put out the work, and you put out the work, and you put out the work, and you are impatient to make better work. You're not impatient to be a hit. Right. You're impatient to make better work. So if you listen to Bob Dylan's autobiography, and it's Bob Dylan, so of course you have to take all of it with a grain of salt. Um, you hear all about the first five or ten years, none of which involved him saying, I wish there was a bigger audience. He right. never said that, right? He said, I need to change the way I sing. I need to change the way I play. I need to become friends with Dave Von Ronk, not so that Dave Von Ronk will get me on stage, but so that he will push me to be a better musician. Right. And I think that it's really tempting to point to a Kardashian and say, that's my role model. Not for me. <laughs> but, but the problem, you know, yeah. the problem is that a, if you could make that work, I don't think you would be proud of it. And B, there already is a Kardashian. Right. So you don't get to go down that path. What we have a shortage of are serious people doing serious work that we would miss if it was gone. So um, I just today uh, I rewatched. I watched it when it came out, but I rewatched it again. Uh, your interview with Chase Jarvis on Creative Live that was a, a great one. And uh, I'm trying. I'm trying my hardest not to try and emulate him today. Uh, but you had you talked about this idea, and it's a brilliant thing. As as a lot of the things you come up with are uh, unlimited bowling, and I love this because I've been trying to describe this in, in an eloquent way, and it just I always end up rambling about it. But uh, if you could explain what that is and how the internet has kind of changed the amount sure. of times you can go bowling, if you will. <laughs> yeah. So I grew up in Buffalo, New York. No baseball, but plenty of bowling. Right. <laughs> and my mom used to drop us off on a snow day and pick us up six hours later. The thing is, you only had a certain amount of money and you needed to buy French fries and you needed to buy a few other items. And the rest was for bowling. So there was precious few uh what do they call those things? Squares of bowling. Yeah, frames. Frames, thank you. Yeah. Frames of bowling. I too went bowling. <laughs> yeah. And so you were super conservative with every role. Right. Right? But what would happen if you were at one of those places where it's all you can bowl for three hours? Unlimited bowling. Right. Well, when it's unlimited bowling, you can experiment because this game doesn't matter so much. When it's unlimited bowling, you can try your hook shot. You can try this. You can try the behind the back thing. Right. And that's how you're going to get better at bowling because you're not going to make every shot precious. You're going to discover, explore the edges, as the cowbell guy said. Yeah. And that's what the internet is. It's unlimited bowling. That you can blog 10 times a day under another name until you get the hang of it, and you can blog under your name when you're ready. You can have a whole new approach to the way you use Twitter. You don't have to use Twitter the way everyone else does. You can use it wrong. Right. Because it's free. And... That is where the overnight successes come from, right? So, right. you know, the most popular music video in history is Psy, 2.5 billion views. Wow. That's almost a third of all the humans on earth. Right. And he didn't follow any of the rules. You can't do that uh, if you're concerned you're only going to get one try. Right. And 
What's interesting is since he did that, he hasn't had anything close to it again because he's afraid to break the rules. I feel like in some ways that the, the, your talks, I feel like I'm like the target audience for them because they resonate so much with me. You know, one of the things that I, you would, you would mention about was like the, the moleskin and the, and the, and the taking the courses and having the right chair and the right look. And, you know, in today's society, there's so many different courses and motivations and talks you can watch, but so much of it really, I think is just kind of bowling, if you will. And I'm curious to know, why do you think that um, young creative professionals are so wanting to engage in learning and taking courses and, you know, having the Moleskine notebook and following all those things. But when it comes time to actually executing, they don't want to do it. How can you be so invested in the idea of, of doing something, being a great writer, being a great designer, and then very little on the execution side? Well, first, I'm not ready to say that a generation is coming up that's taking a lot of courses. Right. Uh, that, you know, when I talk to somebody who says they want to be a graphic designer and I say, well, have you read John McWade? Have you read... Milton Friedman, do you know who Debbie Millman is? Mm -hmm. And they give me a blank stare. It's because it's not that they're taking important courses or taking important books out of the library. It's that they're stalling. Yeah. Like, I know I know how to make a course that 100,000 people would take. I, here's how you would do it. Hey, it's Seth. This is going to be fun. It's going to be easy. There's going to be four hours of video, then you'll be done, and you'll be really smart, and you'll succeed. Right. That if I said that, a lot of people would sign up. I refuse to say that. Because that's not how you learn anything. Right. So what's going on actually is this generation is dealing with the same thing every generation before it has gone through, which is we're afraid. We're afraid people are going to laugh at us. We're afraid we're not going to fit in. We're afraid people are going to think we're a fraud. Right? Right. Afraid, afraid, afraid. And we're waiting for the fear to go away. We're finding a way to make the fear go away. We're bargaining with the fear. And the fact is the closer you get to good work, the louder the fear is. It's never going to go away. Your job is not to make the fear to go away. Your job is to experience the fear and do the work anyway. Right. That's so true. And I, I'm fascinated too by like, you know, you, you mentioned about like not knowing who these people are and um, I'm a designer. I just, uh, just trying to uh, learn as much as I can here in New York City. But it's so funny though, because it's, you know, everyone's so like passionate about design and, and there's so, you know, they love throwing around the big buzzwords at the meeting, but then they don't know, you know, as I'll mention like Michael Beirut and they're like, who? And I'm just like, what, how, how are you not referencing from these people? How are you not learning from these people? And it just, it's like, they know the jargon and they know the things that come out of, of, of those groups, but they don't actually know who the people are or care to learn more. But for me, it's just like, once I, learn from hear from someone like you or from Debbie I just want to learn more and dive deeper but I guess that's not maybe that's not normal maybe a little bit weird <laughs> well but that's good right because yeah. the scarcity is in your favor I, I think that if you talk to Chip Kid or Debbie or Michael mm -hmm. they will tell you that along the way a few people said things to them that opened doors but that almost everything that came after that was listening to the voice in their head. That being prepared to be wrong, being prepared to be ridiculed, being prepared to have it not work is the only way to get good at being creative. Right. That's so true. Yeah, Debbie told me, like, when I started this podcast, this podcast was founded 
based off of an email to Debbie Millman. And uh, like one of the best pieces of advice I got from her was about th th how, how scary this was going to be chasing, you know, chasing this dream and living into the dream and that like, you know, your wildest dreams are possible, but it's going to be a, a train wreck. <laughs> then you're going to have to just, you know, live through it. And it's a year later now. And it was a very difficult first year, but yeah. I'm starting to finally like starting things are coming to fruition and it's, you know, yeah, <laughs> no, it's all good. I mean, the fact is the people who are listening to you don't realize what you went through. They're just, uh, spectators right. and, I know what you've went through and I'm giving you a pat on the back. So you should keep doing it. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. that. That means the world. Another idea that I've heard you talk about is that people that spread ideas win. And you've talked to this at great length and there's a couple of different places where you've talked about that. Um, I think the problem for a lot of people that are just starting out and that's who this podcast is for is uh, designers and marketers and people that are trying to break into the, the field, you know, there's all the talk about like what to do when you have the idea and spreading the idea. What do you do when you don't have the idea? What's the process in discovering an idea that would mean something and provide value to someone? Yeah. I don't think I've met a fully functioning adult who doesn't have an idea. Yeah. I think that a big idea. <laughs> what they're actually saying is they don't have any good ideas. Right. Number one, they have no idea what a good idea is because every time someone tells them a new thing, they say that's a bad idea even the ones that became famous. Right. So lots of people had a chance to invest in Facebook and they didn't. And lots of people had a chance to join Airbnb and they didn't. And lots of people and lots of people. And they all said, that's a bad idea. So I'm not buying that you know the difference between a good idea and a bad idea. That's number one. Number two is the way to get good ideas is to have bad ideas. Right. That if you have enough bad ideas, you can't help but come up with a good one. It's impossible to only have bad ideas. So if you feel stuck, come up with more bad ideas. Keep coming up with bad ideas until one day, by accident, a good idea will arrive. Right. Unlimited bowling. Unlimited bowling. Bam. So I want to talk about the, the current state of education went for creative professionals, whether it be in marketing or in design. And uh, I know that the landscape is shifting dramatically. Um, and there are so many different ways to get an education. What do you think that the future holds? And, and if you were somebody who was, say, in high school today and you're looking, do I need to go to college? Do I need to get a master's? What's the best course of action to take when seeking an education? And, do, and how do you know that you need one or you don't need one? One is, should a high school student go to a famous college? Right. Now, by famous... I don't mean a good college. I mean a college that when you tell other people you're going, they are impressed with you. The thing is that for people who are in a hurry and want to dive deep, college represents a real temptation but a potential distraction because it's easy to turn college into high school but with more binge drinking. Oh, yeah. That it's, oh, I got another A. I took all the courses that I'm supposed to. Show me to the placement office. Right. If you spend a quarter of a million dollars in four years to do that so that you can sell, tell someone you went to Bowdoin, you've wasted money and time. If you can go to Bowdoin, particularly on a full scholarship or Kenyon or Harvard, whatever it is, and break the system, take more courses than you're supposed to, work more directly with professors than you're supposed to, start a project on campus, start another project on campus, start an improv troupe on campus, start a business, 
then take more courses, then go on uh, uh, junior year abroad to Botswana, not to Paris, right? If you're willing to hit it that hard, mm-hmm. it's an extraordinary opportunity. But it takes a lot of wherewithal to do that. Um, what we need to teach you, whether or not it's an organized education or not, is how to lead and how to solve interesting problems. And if you're not going to learn those things in college, then you're just hiding from those things. So that's the first thing I would say about education. The okay. second thing I would say is if you're a creative, if you're in marketing, if you're working on the web, we are taking for granted that you have read the work, that you've done the homework. So if I say to someone, what did Claude Hopkins write? And you can't say back to me, scientific advertising, then I know that you are lazy because you are uninformed. Mm -hmm. And if you haven't read scientific advertising, you're going to have to invent everything that he wrote in his book in 1917, right? If you haven't read, you know, uh, Rules for Revolutionaries, if you haven't read Pressfield's War of Art, if you haven't read Ogilvy on Advertising, if you haven't gone through the rigor of building websites from the ground up without using a website builder, you don't know. Right. And if you don't know, you're not serious. Professionals are serious. They're not doing this to hide. They're doing this to know the work. If you want to be a screenwriter, I want to know how many screenplays have you taken apart and rewritten, right? If I, and I say, you know, I, I've got sitting here in front of me uh, Francis Ford Coppola's notes on Godfather, 450-page wow. Line by line, right? So cool. If you want to be a screenwriter, don't please don't tell me you haven't read this. Don't tell me you don't own this, because what are you insisting that you're just going to be a natural born genius? You haven't worked read every book that David Mamet has written, every screenplay, every play. How can you not? It doesn't cost anything. You just go to the library. It's free. Yeah. So that's the next thing: is are you actually informed? Because there is this sense that. When you're your own boss, you can go easy on yourself. Right. But the people who succeed have a really tough boss themselves who say, how can I be uninformed? How can I be misinformed? How can I be the person who hasn't done the work? Mm-hmm. So when you come to someone like Debbie Millman or Gary Vee and say, can you give me an internship? What's your body of work look like? Mm-hmm. Is your portfolio 30 great pieces of work? seven amazing testimonials or you're just hoping to get picked right out of some famous college why on earth should one of those people pick you right you're an amateur you're not a pro yeah so it used to be that there was a real scarcity of people who knew how to use a camera or knew how to use a t-square who had gone to the rhode island school of design so if you went to RISD, you had a better than average chance of getting a shot at being chip kid right but now there's an infinite number of people who know how to do those things. So yeah. that's not enough. And the piece of paper is not enough. What the question is, is are you a professional? And if so, prove it. Right. And I feel like that at, at that top level, um, you know, you talked about, you know, Gary Vee and Debbie Millman and, um, you know, people who are informed, people who like, you know, know what they're talking about. One of the things that I realized from this podcast was, um, was that 
I thought because when you're in high school when you're, and when you're in college, your relationship is with your parents, your friends, your professors, and it's a relationship in which you, you know, it's a 50-50 kind of thing. But uh, I've formed, I formed great relationships with some of the best creatives in the industry. And then when it came time for me with my handout, I was like, yeah, I'm going to work with you, right? And they were like, no. Anybody who is worth, you know, anybody who has a name like Debbie or, or you know, pick any name. Anybody who is at that level is not going to hire you for altruistic reasons. They're going to hire you based off of what you can do. They're still going to be nice to you. They're still 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 going to mentor you. And that's yeah. kind of like what I I want this podcast to show too is that like, you know, I'm I don't work for these people. I'm not I'm not even at that level, but they're willing to talk to you if you're willing to learn. And I think that a lot of people want to have their hand out and say like, you know, "Hey Seth Godin, can I interview you?" and then at the end they want to, you know, they want to be an editor. They want they want you to you know, give a review for their book. And I think that mentorship is unlimited as long as you know what it is. And I think too many people have their hand out or want something from it, and it'll never happen with anyone who's serious, who is a professional. That's just not how it works. And I was so deflated when I found that out, but it was good to learn, and I learned it very quickly. You know. And I I think it's worth noting here. Yeah. That there's a really big difference between a mentor and a hero. Right. So Debbie Millman, if she works really hard, can mentor a hundred people a year because she's a dean of a school. Right. But she can be a hero to 10,000 people because she yeah. doesn't even have to meet you. You can just say to yourself, what would Debbie do? Mm-hmm. Right. What would Guy Kawasaki do? Uh, you know, go down the list of a hundred people. What would so-and-so do? Right. If you can use them as a role model, you never have to meet them. Yep. And, it turns out that is way more effective than constantly spinning this wheel yeah. and saying, will this stranger who has never heard of me or met me and for whom I have no body of work or value add, right. take me on and be this magical coach? That's yeah. just another way to hide. Yeah. And I think a lot of people put forth their, their best ideas. I know Michael Beirut had talked about it, saying, you know, hijack your mentors. And I, that's basically what you're describing right now. Um, and I feel like a lot of times when you're at a talk and I think a lot of people say like, well, I need, I need to meet them because I need to find out, you know, what's really going on. I think that when people go to talks and give speeches, that's usually their best foot forward and some of their best ideas. So you could just learn so much from watching, whether it be like Chase Jarvis or, or anybody like that who's interviewing people and kind of live vicariously. So hopefully I'm providing that for my 30 listeners. Yeah. I mean, none <laughs> of these people are hiding anything. Right. That's what right. I mean. yeah. Chase has clearly stated exactly what he did to get to where he is. All of it, right? Because I I know him. He's not hiding. There's no secret. None of these people that I know have actually a bat cave, a secret identity, (laughs) a trust fund. None of them. That's true. They're all as as nice or as crazy as you would think they are. If they're crazy, they're usually a little bit crazier, but uh, that's all. It's very interesting. I know you mentioned before... um, about read, uh, your book list, which I'm going to double check. I have all those. I have most of them. I, I was relieved to know that I've read most of them. Uh, you talked about, uh, you mentioned Stephen Pressfield's The War of Art. And I read that book because of you. So thank you. I, I, and then my friend just recently bought it for me for my birthday, the paperback. There's a quote in there that really inspired me. And I know this is probably a bad look to be reading another author's when you have your own books, but I, I wanted to get your, your take I don't, on it. I think it's great. I'd rather you read him than me. Go ahead. <laughs> okay, good, good, good. All right, so this is a great quote. If you haven't read it, it's Stephen Pressfield's The War of Art. And then there's like another line. I always forget. 
It's a great book. I'll put it in the comment section. If you, are, if you find yourself asking yourself and your friends, am I really a writer? Am I really an artist? Chances are you are. The counterfeit innovator is wildly self-confident. The real one is scared to death. Oh, here we go. Stephen Pressfield, The War of Art, Break Through the Blocks and Win Your Inner Creative Battles. So basically talking about being scared to death. And I think that uh, I definitely have had this feeling at times this year, you know, am I uh, capable of being a great designer? Am I, you know, is my podcast really providing value? All these things. And I'm worried about how it all unfolds, but I know I'm doing what I want. You know, I mean, I think Steve wrote that 20 years ago. Right. And I'm, he's not in the room with me now. Right. But I'm not sure he would agree with himself. Really? That many of the people who you know of, who do amazing work that I have met, come across as being a little mentally ill. Right. They're making records or writing books or giving talks completely unaware, apparently, of whether or not they're a fraud. And my thesis is that in order to get to that level, you have to train yourself to just not go down that road. That as soon as the voice arises and says, why don't we ask some friends for some reassurance? As soon as the voice arises that makes you wonder if you're really an artist, just go back to work. Don't indulge the voice. Just go back to work. Every time the voice shows up, record another song. Every time the voice shows up, write another blog post. The voice will learn a lesson. It will stop looking for reassurance because it realizes that every time it says that to you, it's going to get punished by you shipping more work. Right. That's cool. Yeah, it's kind of like, uh, I think uh, it was, I'm not sure if it was, I'm getting my books across here. I think it was from Stephen Pressfield. They were talking about, uh, there was an, a famous author and that inspiration. Talking about when inspiration strikes, and it, and it strikes at was it uh, six a.m. every morning or whatever, and that's that's so true. So, do you think right. it's like a law of? Uh, do you think that it's just kind of just taking your shots, like taking as many shots on goal as possible, and what sticks? Because I think I've heard that, but I've also heard like with this podcast, for example, half the people tell me that it should be very curated and polished mm-hmm. and and take your time and don't put anything out that's going to be, you know, not a hundred percent quality. And then there's the other side of it, which is kind of like the Gary V model where, you know, you're putting out as much as possible and, and you know, there's always something there. Which do you think is better? Is it better to express yourself kind of freely and have a couple bad ones along the way or, or I don't think the answer, I don't think there's an answer along those axes. I think it's take all the shots you're proud of. That's great. Did you just come up with that now? Yeah. Can that be the next book title? (laughs) (laughs) There's there's not a new book right now. But, you know, because I can point you to Harper Lee. She wrote exactly one book. I can also point you to the fact that there are typos on my blog. And what I say to people who point out a typo is I say, thank you very much. And then I fix it. But then I wonder, is there anybody who reads a blog just because it has no typos in it? Of course not. That's not a good right. reason to read a blog. You read a blog because it touches you, it moves you, it changes you, you notice something. And if there are too many typos, you'll stop. But you can tolerate a few because yeah. that's not the problem. You know, Miles Davis recorded Kind of Blue 
one of the most important albums of any kind in any field Absolutely. in four days. In four days. Yeah. So if Miles Davis had spent eight days instead and made sure that there were no flat notes, made sure that the timing was better, would it have been a better album? No. It would have been a worse album. Yeah, that's true. There you go. I love it. That, I heard the same was true about Jack Johnson. Jack Johnson was a failing was failing at, at getting getting any traction. Jack Johnson plays like acoustic guitar, similar like John Mayer. Yeah. Um, you know, and he was just not making anything and, and really frustrated in his career. And then his dad said, you know, I hear you guys jamming. Just jam it, jam and record it and send it out. And they sent it out. And that was the album that everyone knows about him. And I always love that story of kind of just put it out there. If you feel good about it, it's good enough, then do it. So that's awesome. I am really interested in... How do we process the input from the world when things don't go the way we want it to? Right. Right. Now, here's what you got to do if you want to have unlimited bowling. Right. You, you can't bet everything on the next roll. Right. Because if you say to the person you're bowling against, I'll give you my house, my dog, my clothes, everything I own, if I don't get a strike and you don't get a strike, then you're out of the game. The way you do unlimited bowling is you got to stay in the game. So what you put up at risk is not everything you own. What you put up at risk is your heart and your soul. Right. You put your heart and your soul into the project, and if it doesn't work, then you get to roll again. Right. So you don't hold anything back. When... Uh, David Mamet is writing a play. He doesn't say, oh, I got a really good line, but I won't put it in this play because I'll save it for the next play. Right. When Jackson Pollock was painting a painting, he didn't say, wow, I could make this painting better, but I'm going to save it for the next painting. Mm -hmm. You only get to do this painting once. So you put your heart and your soul into it. Right. And then, to quote Lauren Michaels, when it's 1130 on Saturday, Saturday Night Live goes on. Right. It doesn't go on because it's ready. It goes on because it's 11.30. Right. So you set your deadline. You come up with your pace. You put your heart and soul into it. And then you ship the work. And then you do it again. I just completed an internship at... Um, this will be off of the, the beaten path a little bit here. I just completed an internship with a company, uh, a package design company who was very well known, respected. It was it was great. Uh, it was two weeks. It was just you know I was trying my hand, work you know putting my best foot forward. I hadn't worked there before. Over the course of the past year, I've been able to have a couple of different places that I've worked at that I've considered to be dream jobs, and I've considered them to be places where it was like notable and I'd be respected by my peers and stuff like that. But I'm in this phase now where I'm just trying and failing and trying. And I don't know if, because I think failure is a, is a word that gets thrown around a lot. I don't know if it's a failure, but not succeeding, not making the cut. Yep. Sure. Is it normal that I feel um, that I'm not worried, but yet repeatedly not seeing results? Is that kind of just the price that you pay when you're chasing doing well, what you love? Or how do you know? What's a result? Like, are you mean you're not seeing someone saying, oh, good news, the creative director just had a heart attack, but you're here, will you take over for him? Not that's even that. Would be, 
Yeah, no, not even that. Just just like um, belonging and being able to um, kind of hold my own. Because I've been fortunate okay. enough to get into places where I'm over my head, but not fortunate enough that I know how to swim when I get there. So, so when it comes to package design... Or just design in general. Own. I kind of just want to do package design. Just try well, Let's just throw one out. Yeah. Is it because you don't know how to use uh, Illustrator or is it because you don't have the same kind of taste or you don't have the work ethic? Uh, it's definitely the problem is never like the enthusiasm or the work ethic. The problem a lot of times is like the, the technical parts of it. Cause I, I went to a school where like, you know, everyone that I work with, like went to like FIT and like SVA and all these places. And I had a great education, but when you're amongst people that are further along in their career and went to great schools, sure. it's difficult to, to fit in. Well, I don't think it's where they went to school. So you're saying there are people who through experience know how to do uh, a certain kind of uh, uh, die cut that right. would make a package work yeah, exactly. more efficient. And I don't right. have the, the 10,000 yeah. hours, if you will, to know what I'm talking about. They didn't learn that in school. Right. They learn that on the client's time. Yeah. So the question is, if your best friend was starting uh, a company that was making a package good, right? You know, cannabis flavored licorice. <laughs> would you hire you to be the package designer if you had $100,000? No. <laughs> Correct. How are you going to get to be the person that would get hired by someone who knew you if they had the money right. because that's what success looks like, right? Right. Well, you're certainly way closer to it than you were a year ago. Definitely. That, and that's why I feel optimistic. Right. And the easiest thing of the three to fix is your experience because every day you can get more of it. Right. So what you got to do is go get more of it. And you don't get more of it by sharpening pencils for somebody else. You get more of it by doing it. Right. So find clients or invent clients and start making work for them and then make more work and then make more work. So, you know, today's what Wednesday. Right. By next Wednesday, post on Dribble three redesigned Girl Scout boxes for right. cookies. Yeah. Right. And then a week after that, five more. And then a week after that, uh, a totally different thing. And then a week after that, and by a year from now, if you're doing two or three boxes a week, you will have posted complete schematics for 150 different products. And ensuring that you that you know what you're doing because you're just doing it well, certain times. Yeah. yeah, you're doing you're screwing up, and you then you know you know I did I don't have it here. A uh, when I did the book Purple Cow, it came in a milk carton. Right. And. Where do you go to hire somebody to design a milk carton for you? Well, it's really hard because no one designs milk cartons. <laughs> so my friend Red and I figured it out. Right? So there was a period of time right after that where we were the best in the world at designing milk cartons to put a book in. Right. I knew more about how to do that than anyone. Repeat, 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 repeat. You're going to be doing this for 40 years. If you do 150 boxes for 40 years, you'll have 6,000 packages under your belt by the time you're my age. Wow. That's a good thing. Hell yeah. That sounds amazing. I'm going to do that. The problem is, though, is just that like you're uh, – and, and I, I get that, and that's great. And I know that uh, a lot of people who are very successful in this industry have 
are as talented as they are because they started a project, a drawing project, whatever it may be. But uh, a big thing that I talk, that I have people write me emails about and that I deal with is managing the expectations of the people around me while I am falling on my face. Yeah. You know, how, yeah. do, you, how do you explain, like my dad, it comes from the world of like full-time jobs and I'm in a world of like nomadic freelance designers from Brooklyn. <laughs> you know what I mean? So it's like, how, how do you justify to people that, that you are going to succeed when you're not succeeding? Well, what do you want from him that you're not getting? I don't know. I, and it's weird because like my parents are very supportive, but I can also, I also know that they are weary of the fact that I keep going and working at places for a month, but I'm going to these places and I'm get like, I have new relationships and I'm, I'm meeting people and, getting further in my career, but then on paper, I can't show that to them. So I would like some sort of proof to show that what they provided for me, whether it be like, you know, like my college experience and stuff like that. I want to be able to show them like, look, like, you know, I went to school and I did this thing and now I'm succeeding and I feel like I'm succeeding, but I, I feel like they right. question. So, if but, I am. Their, but their proof and your proof are different things. Right. right? And, um, if they love you as much as they think they do, they are feeling how you feel about your work. Right. And I don't think it's fair to expect them to feel the same way because they're not you. Right. Yeah. Right? And so there's a level of reassurance they can't give you. They can't tell you it's all going to be okay because they don't know about your industry. And they can't tell you that you're going to make it to the top because they don't know about your talent and your persistence. Mm -hmm. And the only way that they're going to know for sure is after you get there. Right. And you got to figure out how to be okay with that because anybody who tells you they're sure you're going to make it is lying to you. They right. are reassuring you and reassurance is futile. You can never have enough reassurance. You should stop looking for it. Right. Like, have you ever, have you ever gotten to a point in your career where you like, okay, like, okay, I've made it this far. Like there's like a milestone or do you not never really feel that? Every time I've reached something that was supposed to be a milestone, uh, I cried and became depressed for uh, non-trivial periods of time. Really? Why? Yeah, because they're not what they're cracked up to be. Yeah, that's so that's so crazy. That's what I feel like it's gonna be like for me. So I'll just enjoy the feeling. Yeah. When in doubt, do more work. That's true, and I think that having the patience to do the work. I think because a lot of people want to be good like overnight, like, you know, like right. we, could, we could talk about like popularity and, and, and that part of the spectrum, but also like, you know, the work is, it's the same principle. It's like, I wanted to be good. I wanted to be great overnight. I was like, I'm going to read all these Stephen Heller books. I'm going to do all this stuff and I'm going to be a genius. I'm going to be, they're going to be asking me to teach at SVA. And then I very quickly learned getting into the real world that that's not the case and that mastery is yep. mastery because it's hard. So correct. That's cool. All right. Uh, in closing, uh, thank you so much for your time today. But I want to talk about you made a very big announcement today on your blog. So uh, I'll, I'll let you take it. But Seth, thank you so much for doing this. And uh, thank you for uh, guiding me here and my crazy career path. <laughs> it's a pleasure. Thank you for this work. Uh, today we launched the marketing seminar. You can find it at themarketingseminar.com. It's a 100 day uh, workshop. That's 50 videos from me. Uh, every other day but the big part is that after each video you do some work and then you share it with each other so there are 
thousands of people who are going to be in this journey together. You can do it at your own pace. The room's going to be open for six months. But I'm going to teach the best I can a different way of spreading ideas than the one that people have been brainwashed into believing. Uh, it may not be for you, but if it is, check it out because it's only open till May 12th to sign up for. May 12th. I'm going to edit this as quickly as I possibly can and put this up. And uh, Seth, thank you so much for doing this. It's been a privilege and an honor to speak with you. And uh, you are as nice as everyone says that you are. And uh, this, is, <laughs> this has been great. Thanks. Good luck with your work. Cheers. Thank you, Seth. Yeah.